All right. It can be a bit of a cliche in the talk show business to say our next guest needs no introduction. But certainly Alberta's chief medical officer of health uh, has been a steady and trusted voice for Albertans through this pandemic. Has certainly put in some long hours over the last 17 months, and it's hard to think of a more recognizable name, face and voice for Albertans. Now, there's been some concerns, some controversy, some anxiety around some recent policy decisions. Dr. Dina Hinshaw is here to talk about all of this. Dr. Hinshaw, great to have you with us here this morning. Thank you so much for making some time for us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Now, it was interesting. So it was just over a week ago, you made the announcement about some changes coming and how we deal with and and monitor COVID-19. There's been a lot of reaction to that. Obviously, you released an op-ed yesterday. You you offer an apology of sorts, but but also, you know, reiterating, re-explaining the policy. Talk a bit about where you feel you're at here in, in selling this, explaining this, defending this to Albertans. Yeah, no, and again, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and I think um, it's important to start as I started my op-ed by acknowledging that I uh, didn't do a good job in explaining the rationale in detail or in providing information about what remains in place. You know, I think people heard last Wednesday a list of things that were being taken away, uh, and I wasn't clear about what is remaining or what that plan is going forward. And so, again, I... I do feel very bad about um, how this has played out and I completely understand the reaction of, of um, again people feeling afraid and, and angry and and I also think it's hard because we are at the forefront of what um, I believe all of us are going to need to shift into learning to live with COVID but uh, because Alberta is, is moving into that space on the early edge. Again, I think that that's causing a lot of questions. And so, again, I really appreciate the, the chance to have the conversation this morning. Well, how important is it to you and in, in the position that you have the trust of Albertans? And is it your concern here that maybe some of that trust has, has eroded over the last week or so? I can't do my job without people trusting that the recommendations I make are with the interests of Albertans at heart and so it is a concern that again um, that trust for some people uh, has been damaged by what's happened over the last week and so I I think that the the challenge for me is is not necessarily trying to sell anything or convince anyone but rather to provide people with all the information that uh, that I have that Mm -hmm. informed my recommendations and you know, as I said in the op-ed, I think this is a, COVID-19 is a wicked problem, which by definition means that even the definition of the problem is contentious, as we've seen over the past year and a half. And so there are yeah. no single uh, answers. There's no one right way to do this, as there has never been through the pandemic. And so what's important to me is that people understand the information that went into my recommendations uh, and that we are going to continue to monitor and evaluate and make adjustments as we have had to throughout the last year and a half. I think maybe part of the concern of the confusion for Albertans is that it feels like we're, we're going alone on this. I mean, comparable jurisdictions like the UK, Israel, uh, they're actually stepping up testing and tracing other Canadian provinces are, are maintaining that that surveillance approach so I mean is it fair to say first of all that Alberta is is alone on this uh, I think I would reiterate what I said about Alberta being early and when I've spoken in depth to my colleagues across the country 
about different ways forward. Again, I think there's a, a consensus that we will not eradicate COVID-19. Uh, we're not going to reach a time where it's not present for us to need to manage and that at some point we need to shift into an approach that is sustainable, something that we can live with over a long period of time, um, which our current approach is not. It's simply uh, not something we can continue for years to come. And so I think the, the question is timing and when we make that shift, and again, Alberta is on the early edge of, of making that shift, uh, while you know others are taking longer but but again i don't believe that um that this change this shift is something that alberta will be the only one to do i think again it's that question of of when to do it and and i think again there's a lot of focus on the the risks of making this change and of course there are risks to everything we do and the piece that I think has not been as clearly articulated, again, I did not articulate it as well as I, I could have and should have, are the risks of the status quo and the, the risks of um, continuing on to, to treat COVID as, as an exceptional disease and as the most important risk that we face together, which I believe vaccinations have, um, have changed that. And I think it's my obligation to continue to assess the... Uh, risks and benefits of every policy intervention and make recommendations based on that big picture. It appears to have been around mid-July that uh, the Delta variant finally uh, outcompeted the uh, Alpha variant here in Alberta and established itself as, as dominant. I think we've seen that reflected in you know, rising cases, rising positivity rate, even hospitalizations have crept up a little bit. It seems so we're very early on in our experience with Delta and we're, we're learning more about it. There was some important research from Imperial College in the UK out this week that shed some more light on, you know, the reduction of vaccine efficacy, transmissibility, uh, severity, even the impact on kids. I mean, what you can see, though, that we are still very early. There's a lot we don't know about the full impact of Delta. That's true, and that, again, has been true throughout the pandemic in terms of the need to adjust and shift our approach. Uh, we have known for some time, given the really excellent work out of the UK that has demonstrated the, uh, while the, the vaccine effectiveness is lower, that it's, um, especially with two doses, that the vaccine remains highly effective, particularly against severe outcomes. And so we did look at the uh, impact of Delta with the increased transmissibility and the severity impacts. And we um, did look at modeling out over the, the summer and early fall what that would mean as we moved into a time where restrictions were eased. And our case count will increase. And there's no, no question. I've, I've uh, I hope, been clear about that since the end of June is that I do anticipate that cases will go up. Um, what's different at this point in time is that those cases will not translate into the same kind of severe outcomes that we saw earlier. And again, it's it's not about COVID being behind us or no longer a risk. It's about the nature of that risk changing based on the wide availability of vaccines uh, and the uptake that we currently have. I, I think people need to take COVID very seriously and I continue to do so. But again, we can't look at COVID is the only risk that we face.
It's certainly true that vaccines have changed the equation in terms of this disease and its impact, but it's it's still unclear what that exact relationship is. We're, we're at 97 people in hospital on about 2,200 active cases. It, it doesn't necessarily follow that, you know, 10 times the number of active cases is going to be 10 times the number of hospitalizations. But, I mean, at this point, do we really know what that, that ratio is going forward? What we know is that uh, since the beginning of July, when Delta has been dominant, that 95% of our cases have been in those who aren't fully vaccinated. 95% of our deaths have been in those who are not fully vaccinated and 94% have been in those hospitalizations have been in those who are not fully vaccinated. So I think the, um, the fact is that we need to make sure that everyone has accurate information about vaccine, has easy access to it, and that we continue to work on providing that availability to what is truly a life-saving intervention. And at the same time, again, um, the longer we look at COVID as, as the only thing that matters, the more we're allowing the risks of, for example, uh, babies dying from congenital syphilis and falling behind in vaccines for other vaccine-preventable diseases. Our routine child immunization rates are dropping. We have uh, cancer screening rates that are dropping. People not getting diagnosed as, as early as they otherwise would have. And with the resources in the system, you know, the public health resources, we only have so many people to do the work. And if we allocate the majority of those people to COVID as the, the number one um, risk, as that risk changes, we're not, I believe we're not doing Albertans the best service. With regard to kids in schools, and, and as you've you know pointed out, I mean, it's that's personal to you. You have young kids in, in school. So kids that are too young to be vaccinated, uh, I don't know if we fully know the impact of, of Delta on kids. But one of the concerns I've, I've heard, uh, you know, with regard to taking away testing is for parents to make informed decisions, right? The, the default response we know as parents, if your kid has a cold, you know, they stay home for, for two or three days. I, I think it's pretty clear at this point that two or three days is not sufficient when it comes to COVID-19 and, and the very real risk that we're going to have infectious kids at school because parents aren't going to know what it is they're dealing with. How do we address that? Again, I think that's a, and a really important question. And as you said, um, a very personal one for me. We know from the data that we have on influenza, seasonal influenza in kids, that uh, the impacts of COVID-19 and the impacts of seasonal influenza have been roughly similar. And we know that um, schools have not been a dominant location for transmission of COVID-19. We've seen throughout the pandemic that uh, schools have been impacted by community transmission, um, but have not been the, the dominant source for spread or a major source for spread uh, again, you know, multiple times we've opened schools, had kids go back and had the ability to keep them in school safely. So I think, again, for kids, it's really important to think about not just the risk of COVID, but all of the other risks that our kids face and to try to put that into context. We know that um, current evidence on masking would say there's no uh, clinical detriment. So um, from a medical perspective, again, with some rare exceptions that can be discussed with a clinician, masking is not something that will harm children medically. But from a, a developmental communication and uh, social perspective, I think there are 
uh, some risks to masking. And so that's why it's really critical that parents have the ability to make that decision and that schools support masking where where that um, is what families want to do. And I also think that we have forgotten that we navigate, because we've been so focused on COVID for so long, as parents, we navigate risks for our kids every day. And when we choose to avoid one risk, um, there are other risks that come along with that. And again, that's part of trying to figure out how to live with COVID and not putting an extraordinary burden of prevention on kids. We know that the quarantine and isolation impacts on kids in schools have been tremendous and, and kids who've had to be in a, a whole class quarantine multiple times, it's really disrupted their learning and development. And we need to look at those impacts as well. So there's no there's no easy answers here, but again, it's about trying to integrate the risks of COVID with how we navigate the risks of everything else. And the one other thing for schools, I should say, is that uh, what we're what we're working through is a bundle of interventions that could go in place in schools that see a surge of respiratory illness because we know that again many viruses circulate in schools that can have impacts on kids health and if we're looking at this in a sustainable way what are the kinds of interventions that we could live with over the long term what are the lessons from covid that we can learn to improve our kids health um, those are the kinds of things that we want to be able to do to go into schools when there is that surge and put in place some measures that that help mitigate transmission uh, but not um, to have kids live with that forever but rather to do it when it matters most okay but again the the point about parents knowing what it is they're dealing with and and the ability to get their kid tested and, and know how to respond right because again i think there's that default that we know what to do when when it's a cold or a flu this is something new and this is something different as you've reiterated through this pandemic COVID 19 manifests itself in different ways it has a longer infectious period and two or three days isn't isn't sufficient to, to get past that contagious period isn't it a detriment to to schools and to other kids then to potentially have infectious children uh attending school the certainly we've we've been uh following again that that 10-day period we know that um again from studies that have looked at how long people shed uh, live virus that it typically, again, for the majority of people, um, they would stop shedding around, you know, be completely done by about day eight. We've added those two days for extra caution before we had availability of vaccines. And so, as you say, there's the that extra period at the end. We also know, though, that the majority of uh, or the, the height of, of infectivity is early on so it's in the the day or two even before symptoms start and then at that period of time uh, when when symptoms first begin and so i think that the point about being able to test and know is it COVID or is it not um, we know that for example in the uk where they've done widespread take-home testing in schools that it, it didn't necessarily have a huge impact on their ability to manage COVID and Again, one of the things that I think COVID has taught us is we need to be thinking about staying home when sick, and that will that will be the period of greatest risk. Um, and I think again, making sure that we are supporting people to do that, that will have the the biggest impact on keeping everyone safe. Um, and of course, parents are going to need to make decisions. Some parents have children who 
have medical conditions for which not just COVID, but influenza and other viruses could have a serious outcome. And, and there's not going to be a single right answer for every family. And again, that's a part of, of planning forward and giving people information about uh, what's circulating in their communities. We will be using wastewater surveillance to make sure that people have that information about um, when COVID is circulating in a community. And, and so information will be there. It's going to be in a different form. Uh, in, in terms of this, some of the response to, to these these plans, I mean, we've heard from the Alberta Medical Association, the Canadian Pediatric Society. We've also even heard from the federal health minister, who's who's outlined some concerns in, in a letter to Alberta's health minister. Um, I, I mean, is is there going to be an opportunity at some point, maybe, to present more of of the science and data that that you're relying on, or, or what would you say then to to your counterparts in the medical field? I am uh, going to be hosting a town hall, a second town hall for physicians and pharmacists tonight. So we did do one last uh, week. And so Wednesday after the media announcement, there was a an open town hall for all physicians and pharmacists. And we'll be doing another one tonight because there is a lot of interest in the evidence, in the data, uh, what informed these recommendations. And so we'll be speaking directly to my colleagues. And I know that many of them are very concerned and I appreciate their concern and advocacy and, and again I think it's important to recognize that um, the recommendations that I made were not about leaving COVID behind but rather changing how we manage COVID so that we can sustain that approach and um, and start to also have resources to address some of the other health concerns that are facing Albertans right now. Well, Dr. Hinshaw, we'll leave it there. Appreciate you making some time for us again here this morning and uh, appreciate all the work you've been doing over the last year and a half here. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. All the best. There you go. That is Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more on the Chorus Radio Network.